If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. Apart from the smoking and the drinking and the vulgar mother and the verbal diarrhea. No, I like you very much. Just as you are. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The message is simple. It's time to bring about fundamental change. Hi, and welcome back to Barely Getting By in our second installment on the liberal feminism of the 1990s. In our last part, of course, we spoke about liberal feminism in the United States. But this time around, um, I wanted to discuss with Chloe the way that liberal feminism kind of manifested in popular culture in the 1990s. And that means turning to one of Chloe's favorite topics. So we are, we are indulging each other once again, um, because we're going to talk about Jane Austen adaptations, which had a kind of renaissance in the 1990s. That's absolutely right. So the 1990s saw what I think is quite an insane number of adaptations of Jane Austen's works for TV and in film. And I've got to say they were extremely formative for me. I don't know about you, Emma. Actually, no. You know, to be honest, I came to Austen probably quite late for a a white middle class woman. I didn't get to them until um, my 20s when I was in Italy. And that was honestly purely because the only bookshop that had English books, that was they were the only books they carried in English. So I had no choice but to read Austen. Really? And did you like them? I did. I I loved them. But to be honest, I didn't I didn't read them critically. I read them as, you know, pure escapism, I think, enjoying reading stuff in English. Well, that's probably a good place to start because um, I would say I've read Jane Austen critically and uncritically since on and off since I was about 12 years old. And I think the argument I'm going to make today is that Jane Austen is not actually escapism. That's not the best light in which we should see Jane Austen and her work. Unsurprising that Chloe is bringing a um, what I suspect is going to be a class lens to, to Jane Austen, but maybe we'll get to that. Because am I right in thinking, Chloe, that in the 1990s revisiting of Jane Austen, it very much was a form of escapism? Yes. Well, to an extent, I think it was... It was Jane Austen was reformulated to suit the priorities of the 1990s, but there definitely was an escapist element in that. So if we look at what was happening in the UK in the 1990s in terms of culture, um, and you can probably tell that I'm driving inexorably to the 1995 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice here, the 1980s did see a lot of adaptations of so-called classic novels, and these were generally like the most famous for the production company Merchant Ivory, which created them. And that's been seen by scholars as kind of a compensation for, you know, sort of strife and suffering under Thatcherism. So these sorts of adaptations, they tend to write, write kind of a, a sense of calm and a sense of a return to nostalgic traditional values. So that was kind of this first flourishing of the modern adaptation. But at the same time, some of them did have a a subversive undercurrent. So, for example, we have the film Morris, which is based on an E.M. Forster novel and has an explicitly gay romantic plot. Um, That was written by James Ivory, who also made Call Me By Your Name and starred a very young Hugh Grant. 
Speaking of, of 90s icons that we haven't got to yet, I'm, I'm excited to talk a bit more about Hugh Grant. Um, so, so you're saying in the 80s there's a kind of um, revival, I guess, of these historic novels, but they're a little bit subversive in the 80s. And we, am I right in thinking we don't see that in the 90s because yes, we- politics has changed? That's right. We're definitely so, you know, rather than trying to either compensate for Thatcherism or also trying to subtly critique it, by the 1990s, we've moved into a period of relative affluence, relative social calm. This is Tony Blair's New Labour Britain. So Austin adaptations were written and produced with a mind to the sort of middle class audience and middle class women who Tony Blair was also also appealing to. All right, excellent. So that, of course, brings us, as you said, Chloe, to the 1995 version, BBC version, is that right? BBC, yeah, that's right. Of, of Pride and Prejudice, which kind of or foreshadows Blair's Britain almost. I'd say that's, I'd say that's fair to say. <laughs> okay, all right. So, so for the uninitiated, tell us about this particular adaptation. Okay. I've got to say, I think... This is one one place where I'm not sure that I even need to introduce this, seeing as it's so you know thoroughly imprinted on my childhood. But some people may not be acquainted with it. So first of all, Pride and Prejudice is Jane Austen's. I'd say probably nowadays it's Jane Austen's most famous book. Um, it's not it's not necessarily regarded by many people as her best book. A lot of people think that Emma, for example, was the perfect novel. Obviously. <laughs> so, but Pride and Prejudice tells the story of Elizabeth Bennet, who is the smarter, the cleverest, the wittiest of five genteel but impoverished sisters. And it's the story of her very slowly um, overcoming her pride and her prejudice and falling in love with the aloof Mr Darcy. Please let me say this. Please allow me to thank you on behalf of all my family since they don't know to whom they are indebted. If you will thank me, let it be for yourself alone. Your family owes me nothing. Much as I respect them, I believe I thought only of you. You are too generous to trifle with me. If your feelings are what they were last April, tell me so at once. My affections and wishes are unchanged. But one word from you will silence me on this subject forever. Mr Darcy, of course, is a very young and a very handsome Colin Firth. Yes, uh, the 1995 Pride and Prejudice did sort of unleash Colin Firth onto the world with the um, the iconic, and I, I use that word advisedly because I actually hate the word iconic, but I think it's fair to say that that scene where Mr Darcy dives into the lake and then eventually emerges looking dishevelled and, you know, less than less than proper as he accidentally <laughs> comes upon Elizabeth Bennet. <laughs> In the grounds of his house at Pemberley. Yes, that is true. That is a truly iconic scene in 1990s TV. Yeah, I have to say the one that sticks out for me is uh, when he's having a bath. I and know. he gets out of the bath, they're all glistening. There's definitely some, some teenage feels there. But anyway, that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> so, of course, Mr Darcy is, is gorgeous and brooding. But the reason we're talking about Austen is because we're talking about the feminism of the 1990s. So, so how, Chloe, does does Lizzie Bennett kind of manifest 90s feminism, do you think? Well, I think that she was kind of an easy get for a production company that is trying to make Jane Austen relatable to a 1990s liberal feminist audience because the whole point of Lizzie Bennett is that she's witty, she's funny, and she's significantly smarter than everyone around her. So she is, you know, she's sort of an aspirational ideal for any, you know, for any 
self-respecting young middle-class professional woman in the 90s um and I think it's also important to remember that she's also you know she's also the sort of woman who has to kind of the only impediments to her gaining her happiness are her own personal flaws so you know the pride and the prejudice of the title so she kind of just all she needs to do to get what she wants is get over herself and that's how she gets the man and that's how she gets the house the beautiful house at Pemberley Okay, and that uh, that I think is is probably a crucial point because these films or these adaptations are kind of regarded as romances, but the house is pretty important too, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. The house, the house is pretty important in the TV series. The house is very, very important in Austin. I think this is where the adaptation starts to move away from the source material. Um, so. Like I said, you know, Lizzie Bennet, she has to get over her, you know, sort of personal issues to to land Mr. Darcy. And again, very anti-feminist language, but also language that was in currency in the 1990s. But the stakes for her are really about her personal happiness. They're not about her social standing. And if you go back to the original book, Pride and Prejudice, they're all about social standing. They're all about class. The stakes are much higher. So when I think about how that 1995 adaptation sort of reread the original book I always think of the the scene at the end where and again I'm you know probably assuming a lot of knowledge on the part of anyone listening and not everyone will have this sort of burnt into their into these scenes burnt into their brain um but there's a scene right at the end where Lizzie makes a joke to her sister Jane about how she you know she decided that she loved Mr Darcy when she saw his beautiful house in the in the in the TV series, that's played off very much as a joke. Whereas I think the novel gives you enough pause to think, actually, maybe there is a, there is a significant degree to which she fell in love with him because of his house and because of the wealth and the social security that he represents. And that I mean, just hearing you say that, it it sounds very familiar. If we if we go back to our discussion of Tony Blair's Britain, those things gel pretty well together. Am I right in thinking that? I think so. I think it's fair to say that this is an adaptation that was designed around the sort of society that Tony Blair claimed had come into being in the 1990s, where, you know, class differences, if they hadn't been totally eradicated, they'd been kind of flattened out. And where there was this kind of assumption of abiding prosperity and eternal growth, like it's a it's a place where class doesn't matter so much as merit. And there's nothing a person, a bit a person can be um there's better than being educated and well-mannered so in the end the love story is about two people who are deserving because they're so much smarter and so much better than all the people around them and they they manage to triumph because of those virtues and because of that that merit okay so so class becomes irrelevant and these characters are better than everybody else by virtue of their their education and their manners not by virtue of their enormous wealth which I think is a subject we'll come back to frequently but that discussion of wealth and also your point about Emma probably being Austen's best work naturally leads me to um, a really important film I think in our relationship Chloe which is Clueless. I think what Emma's referring to here is the fact that most of our conversations on messenger and text consist entirely of clueless gifts which um, 
I don't know. I don't know what that says. It, it does. It kind of says to it says to me that we haven't really necessarily left behind our origins as '90s middle class white women. <laughs> I, right? th- I think no so. matter how much we try. I think that's probably true. The whole reason that we're doing this series, and also you know the confession that we actually wanted to name the, the podcast Clueless, but weren't able to because they have been so effective at copywriting all of those titles that we're not allowed to touch them, but we are allowed to talk about the film. So. Let's get to it because I think actually not many people would know, and I didn't know this till much later, that Clueless is in fact based on Jane Austen's Emma. Yeah, it's based on Jane Austen's Emma and I would say that it's actually a really, really close adaptation of it. In terms of the mechanics of the plot, the characterization, it's it's about as close as I think you could get a teen film set in affluent 90s LA to Regency England. Um, so Emma is about – it's – at its core, this is a story about a rich, clever young woman who meddles in other people's love lives but has absolutely no insight into her own. That's what drives the story of Emma and that's what drives the story of Clueless. So it gets this story gets translated to 1990s LA and it kind of occupies the same landscape as Beverly Hills 90210, which I don't know about you, but I was definitely not allowed to watch that as a kid. Definitely but I was allowed not. to watch Clueless. <laughs> yes, I was allowed to watch Clueless, but definitely not 90210. So, yeah, so what happens is Emma becomes Cher, who is a rich, popular high school student. This is so while I said, you know, it's very it's very respectful and hues quite closely to the actual plot of Austen's original original novel. What I'd say is that it gets rid of class um, in the sense that everyone you meet in Clueless is rich, except for that, you know, the slight detour to the valley, which still doesn't actually make much sense to me as a cultural reference because I've never been to L.A., um, but everyone is rich in this scenario. Instead, the stakes, as opposed to, again, the stakes from in the 1995 um, adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, the stakes are all cultural. It's all about these anxious teenagers who are deep down very scared about, of the, about the prospect of slipping down the social ladder of high school by dating the wrong person. Boy, getting off the freeway makes you realise how important love is. After that, Dion's virginity went from technical to non-existent. I realised how much I wanted a boyfriend of my own. Yeah, which is a whole storyline, of course, because there's the the kind of lovely, um, bumbling skater character, Travis, who absolutely adores one of the women characters, but, you know, they have to go through this whole process of learning that he's not terrible just because he's not wealthy and has kind of bad manners and wears the wrong clothes, which is a very Austin kind of storyline again. Yeah, that's right, except that I probably, I'd suggest that given the milieu that we're talking about. I'm, I don't know that Travis wasn't wasn't necessarily rich. I would argue that he was poor. Like, I've kind of always worked with the assumption that everyone's rich. He's just a dropkick because he smokes pot. Yeah, that is that is a good but point. But again, probably I'm not I'm not close enough to the social dynamics of 90s LA to be able to speak authoritatively about that. That's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, and it is, it is very much situated in 90s America, in 90s LA, in the kind of rich suburbs, particularly of LA. And, and they, I think the film uses place really well. Are you talking about the mall? I am talking about the mall, yes. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. And I think that this is, also, this is also one of those instances where we can really see how American cultural dominion worked in the 1990s because – we have nothing like 90s malls in America, in Australia. We have nothing like the, their malls now. And yet it is this this place which is so heavily loaded with cultural associations and 
connotations about what it means to be to be a white middle class teenager that having watched that movie you know a million times since you know since the age of 10 or 8 or whenever it came out I feel like the mall is something is, is kind of part of of my own cultural memory despite my never actually having been to one um the other thing that I'd say is that this is also an example of how it like the movie and I really love Clueless it, it does really effectively transpose the plot and the basic dynamics of Emma to this situation because you know, while Clueless is satirising teen culture and it's satirising, you know, this sort of mythic mall, it does it in a way that takes it quite seriously. So you, if you watch the movie, you see that all these critical social exchanges and events all take place at the mall. And I'm thinking, you know, for instance, about this, this crucial scene where Ty, who's the friend who dates Travis, the stoner, where she almost dies, air quotes, almost dies at the mall, and that causes this serious social rupture. So it's... It's a film that, and in the way that I think Jane Austen herself was, is very lighthearted, very satirical, but it's also it also has some serious things to say about the society that it's re- representing. Yeah, and, and of course, the society that Clueless is representing is Clinton's America. They're, these people are young and educated. They're also um, outwardly and performatively progressive. The film is deliberately very diverse. Um, so I think it's really interesting, you know, the way we've just talked about Pride and Prejudice and Blair's Britain. I think Clueless is doing something similar with Clinton's America. I I think so. And I when you said that, I thought of the... There's a scene where she manages to bargain her way to a better grade. And that scene is something that we're meant to admire and respect. And I think that's the sort of thing that really that did fly in Clinton America. And I, th- and I think, you know, this is probably a stretch. And I think we should probably leave, leave people with this very provo- provocative thought that maybe Emma, as in Emma from the novel, Emma share, are they kind of, they're kind of analogs of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that, that is a really interesting in that, point. In this, mm. in that sense of their being, you know, very clever in their own right, very talented, but also entitled and, they demand respect because of the way that they use that entitlement and even arguably abuse it. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. And, I, and you know, going back to what you were saying about negotiating a better grade, the clever women who use systems to their advantage, you know, they behave like men. They aspire to have the same kind of power as men, but, you know, being gentler and prettier while they're doing it. Okay, so on that note... Look, to be honest, I don't want this conversation to end, so we are going to continue with our discussion of Jane Austen and the 1990s in the next instalment when we turn to Bridget Jones's diary and what Jane Austen means today. 